hey, this is part two of my conversation with composer Dave Porter. But real quick, maybe the greatest joy about doing this uh, was getting to rewatch Breaking Bad. I'll just say this. It's eminently rewatchable. It really is. I mean, that's obvious. But um, I really had a good time watching it again. And watching it again uh, raises new what ifs and questions. Like what if Gail Bedeker had stuck to brewing coffee is one. And it brings new observations, like uh, in season two, when Jesse is negotiating with Badger's cousin over keeping the RV, uh, aka the mobile meth lab, aka the crystal ship. Uh, And what, to my absolute delight, I discovered is actually named the Fleetwood Bounder (laughs) on his lot. Uh, There's a moment when Jesse asks him how much he wants for a blue Chevy El Camino that's on the lot. I'm pretty sure it's an El Camino. I couldn't be positive. I wasn't completely certain, but I think it is. Corey quotes him nine grand and Jesse passes, uh, electing for that red hatchback instead. Um, Let me just say this. Whoever chose the car models on this show, hats off to you. Amazing job. Uh, How great were all the the car models in this world. But I have to say, one of the rewards of this rewatch was to discover that Jesse almost had his own El Camino long before he inherited Todd's in, in last year's Breaking Bad film soundtrack of which Dave and I talked about in the first part of this conversation and and continue to talk about in part two. We also get into some specific cues, which is good conversation. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoy it. And without further ado, let's get into part two of my conversation with Dave Porter. Well, it brings me to this question about your philosophy about no music at all in, in certain moments. One of the more engrossing and ultimately tension-filled episodes uh, in Saul for me was Five O, where you get the bulk of Mike's backstory. Mm. You know, a lot of the edge of your seat sequences in Breaking Bad had scoring, and this one noticeably did not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it was to to the greatest effect. I mean, I suppose it was in part because there was a good deal of talking between Mike and the crooked cops that killed his son. But I felt like it was something more there, like like the winter cold night, you know, the silent still of Philadelphia in the winter added great weight to what transpired. I wondered, was there ever going to be music during that sequence from you? Or did you try anything out there? Or was it just like the tension was already there and you didn't need anything else to add to this face off between the cops that killed his son and Mike? Right. I think that's, yes, it's all of that. Yes, I did definitely try it. Um, I, well, I'm probably sure I even showed it to Vincent Peter, but but I think ultimately what we decided, and I, I was all for this, was that for the reasons you mentioned, there's a lot of important dialogue and a lot of contextually important things there that you need to hear and understand. Plus the performances were so good as always. Plus they were in this amazing location that was ripe for all this cool eeriness that could be presented in the background. And that coupled with, you know, another thought that I remember having, which is that my thought about it was, wow, here's a story out of the past. And so typically what happens here is to, to help our audience span into the past, right? We put score because score triggers 
some sort of otherworldliness or some sort of memory connection to help the audience think, oh, this is not now. But unfortunately, what that also does is when you think of something as not being now, then it's not urgent. It's not pressing. It's not visceral. Hmm. And so when I tried to put score in that moment, it's softened. You know, even, even the you know, most tense I could get score-wise, to me, made the moment less real and less tangible. And as a result, I think, less intimidating. We, and, and, and we come upon this a lot in, in especially Better Call Saul because we all know Mike survives this moment. Mm-hmm. And that's not true in a lot of stories that you're telling, right? That you want the whole purpose is to make yourself unsure of what happens. So again, too, there I didn't want to overhype the moment with score and mislead our audience into believing that something was actually gonna that I, you know, Mike was gonna end up with a hole in his head because he clearly isn't. Um, but it doesn't mean in the moment you can't enjoy, right? That visceral terror of of that moment but i think it played best at least i hope without score uh and again there our, our sound team did a great job of just being so subtle with the trains the idling trains and just distant stuff in that industrial spot that add that menace in, in a way that is not guiding our audience particularly or overtly in any specific direction yeah, you feel the environment of, of where they are. You feel the setting. And it's amazing. It's almost like the cold night air is coming through, even <laughs> though I don't even know if you hear it, but it, you feel it. And you feel the bar. You feel the, 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 the kind of muffled sound of a bar when you're too drunk, like Mike was. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time, waiting to see how this transpired. And at the end of it, when I took a breath, I realized, oh, there's no, there wasn't any score throughout any of that. There was, there was nothing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think of movies like No Country for Old Men in that way. Sure. You know, where there's basically no score in that movie. Right. Do, do you watch Barry? Uh, I've watched the first season. I'm behind on it. but uh, Bill Hader. Yeah. Uh, there's an episode, I don't want to spoil it for you, but it was talked about a lot. It's kind of a, what do they call it? A... What do they call the episode that's like a standalone? It's totally apart from it's a bottleneck or like something a like a bottle episode. Is that what they? Is that how they say? A it? bottle episode is an episode where you're concentrating on one specific character or set of characters. It's sort of an enclosed story within the story, and it's often used honestly as a way to to put out an episode that doesn't require a lot of locations and a lot of things so that they can save money to splurge on other episodes <laughs> <laughs> like the fly like the fly in the lab episode and in, in exactly Bad. exactly it's not that it's not a crucial to the story overall story it absolutely is in fact i think it's one of breaking bad's finest episodes me too but it it, it is designed yes to to and again we were talking about this a little in the difference between tv and film it's, it's an opportunity for a tv show for example to hone in on one very specific storyline as opposed to, again, jumping back and forth like episodes usually do. Right. And there was one of those episodes in Barry where there is no music throughout the entire thing. You don't even notice it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's this, they go into a Rite Aid or something at the end and you hear the typical cheesy Rite Aid music in the background and that's the only thing that you hear. Mm-hmm. 
I'm so always so focused on the music and I love it when something happens and I realize that there's this negative space and that's always such a fantastic thing for me when it works. It does. And, and the, and the flip side of that as a composer, I think that I've learned more and more as, as I've gone on in my career is that the value of those moments without music for me as a composer is that when my music does appear, it carries more weight. Yeah. Because your ear hasn't been barraged by a lot of things for a while, it makes that it makes the power of what you do have to say when you're able to say it speak louder. as I became with the characters and the narrative of the long story of Breaking Bad, when I think about it, what brought me into that world and out of my own was the environment, you know, the Albuquerque landscape, the Albuquerque community, all the levels of that community that are introduced in one way or another throughout the story. And I associate that arid kind of sun-baked strip mall world with your music more so than I associate it with any character. Uh, and, and that escape into that world was the most, for me, the most gratifying thing. It's like, oh, I'm going back to this Albuquerque world that I have no frame of reference for. And my only frame <laughs> of reference is, is this show, basically. You know, you've said that you don't use character as a basis for themes because the characters are always evolving. Uh, did you draw inspiration from the physical environment? Did you spend time in Albuquerque? Did, was there any influence tangibly there? I have, yes, uh, but not at the beginning, honestly. I think when, when I was first working on the pilot episode of Breaking Bad, I had never been to New Mexico, and it was only in, in later seasons that I was able to to go there for various events and things and then go out. I definitely took the time to go out exploring on my own when I was there in part to see some of the places where they've shot, you know, important moments of the show and just to get a feel for, for what it's like there. Um, but in all fairness, I mean, I think you see it is, it is so well presented visually in how the show is always shot and they take such great advantage of that light that is very unique, I think, to New Mexico. Certainly the the outdoor vistas, but just as much as the outdoor vistas, that, that just very unique to me lost world of Albuquerque. I mean, just it, it just feels, it feels timeless uh, and yet stuck in time. You know, I think about the, the hot dog place you know, with the, with the neon lights, with the tail wagging, which, you know, appears in both shows at different times in very different circumstances. Uh, but just little spots like that that are, that are so cool, it's very American to me. Southwest, yes, but, you know, I don't know, also 
feels very hard of the country to me. You know, could be could be Scranton, PA. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just very welcoming, and we see that stuff, and it it tells its own story too, and certainly uh, is a big factor in in telling the story that Vince and Peter are telling here. And in ways I probably don't even realize influences the music that I then write for it. Because there is, and again, I, and I think of some of those sweeping vistas, there's so much power and majesty, and a, but at the same time, a kind of daunting scale to, to all that, particularly in Breaking Bad, uh, that to me, I found that writing really big music was contradicting it too much. You know, it's just putting a hat on a hat, as Vince might actually say. You know, it just that was already there. So, so what are you, what are you going to do that's going to complement that? Um, and to me, often that was about not so much scale, but how small we feel when presented with that scale, despite all the manifestations that we as humans put around us, uh, whether it's friend or families or colleagues or or infrastructure, or buildings, um, we are at the core of it just on our own out there, fighting our fight. And whether it's Walter White who's fighting that fight and it grows from something that's very small to something that's absolutely epic and, and world-altering, or is much more a smaller microcosm like it is for Saul, right? His fight is all his own. Even though it has bigger ramifications, it's really the important ramifications of his very small world around him that we're telling. In either case, there are those, I think, very human connections we all have, in spite of all of our trappings, to being on our own uh, against the backdrop of all this other stuff that, that feels so much bigger than us and so much more daunting. this environment and the people who exist in it, the other thing that I felt was that your music brought out the time of day in this world. I felt like some of your most impactful pieces occurred at night. You know, whether it's Mike skulking around doing whatever he's doing secretively when everybody's asleep or, you know, whether it's the kind of meetings that take place <laughs> in lots way out way outside of town i felt like that's where your music kind of you know enhanced those moments the most did you feel like the daytime was maybe more of a residence for the source music and the nighttime was more of your your place to play around <laughs> it's really interesting i have to say i don't think i've ever thought of it that way uh it'd be fascinating 
to go back and sort of look, right, to see how much of my score ends up appearing in dark places as opposed to in the light of the day. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean... Well, that was just for, that was my impression. That no, was no, like, no. I, I, yeah. it's, it's totally valid, of course. And I, I think, um, I mean, to counter that, I might say that maybe there's a level of extremes from the, the darkest of night to the most scorching of the desert that has led to moments that, that have been uh, ripe for score. I mean, there's no question that at nighttime, right, the cockroaches come out. So yeah, <laughs> and and part of my role, uh, for sure, with the score is, is to darken intrigue, and and complicate those moments as much as possible. And and uh, some of my opportunities to do that, uh, of course, yeah, are, are in the the darkest alleys and warehouses they can find when everybody else is asleep. Right. Um, it brings the moodiness, you know, there, I guess that's more of the ambient part of the, of the world and the, the dark moodiness that I'm thinking about. And maybe that's what I respond to a lot in your music. But to your point, the contrast of that is that some of your longest sequences took place during the day. I mean, I can think of Border Crossing was one of my favorites in, I guess it was episode eight of Saul where we see the truck going into inspection. Mm-hmm. That was one where that must have been one of your longest pieces, right? Mm-hmm. In this sure. world. And, and another one was obviously the train heist. That was an extended yes. sequence as well. And then also the kind of unraveling of Chuck. Exactly. I, mean, that, I was going to mention that too, yeah. Was that one of your hardest ones? Because that seemed to have the most arc to it in terms of an entire piece of music that you might even think of like a piece of classical music might have where it has stanzas or stages? Yes, exactly right. It took me a long time to work on that piece because it, it, it is a roller coaster. You know, it, 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 it obviously is building throughout to a peak, but at the same time, there's a lot of ebbing and flowing in the middle of it. Uh, and it's a long little journey within a much larger journey uh, of where we are. And it's, you know, uh, it w- it's my farewell moment to a very beloved character, musically speaking, that I'd been working up to in music that I had written for him for several seasons leading up to that point. His character demanded, I think, maybe a little bit more of a departure sonically from our other characters in the show because uh, two things. One is that he is a very different character than we've experienced, I think, in the, in the Breaking Bad universe. But also, we have specifically used music as an identifier for who he is. So we already know that he is very sophisticated in his musical knowledge. He's very into classical music. He's very into jazz he listens to records on vinyl. He's he's that, and he's that older guy who's got that. He's and never gave up his enormous vinyl collection, right? And so we we know that that all of that stuff is so important to him. So there, for me, the challenge there, as it often is when doing music that's specific to a character, is um, grounding it in the palette that is known and familiar to the show. Um, but also evolving a little bit enough that it gives it a, enough nuance that is unique 
to Chuck, and certainly I don't do that for every character, but there, there are some characters that warrant that and, and deserve it in the grander scheme of things. And then it becomes just sort of how do you blend the two? And then in this instance, how do, you, how do you bring that little taste of, of that jazz and that classical sophistication into the cue? And for me, it was this, the solo trumpet line that, that, that weaves its way in there, which is, again, as, as I do with all things, is very treated. It's not a, just a trumpet. It's got a lot going on to it. Um, but it is a trumpet, and it's identifiable as such. And that alone felt very powerful. And it, it, was, a, it was a big moment, and uh, we spent a lot, a lot of time on it. Um, but uh, very proud of that moment. And obviously, you know, Michael McKean is amazing in, in that sequence. He's really... He's, he's losing it or lost it. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. he's at the end of his rope. And uh, it's, it's really heartbreaking. And I think the way you approached it really brought that out, you know, the demise of his, of his character. Yeah, and, and I, I hope, uh, again, you know, playing against the physical, right? I mean, if physically, he's tearing up his house, right? Which is absolutely against anything, right? I mean, he cared so much for that house. He cared so much for his books, for everything. And right there is the proof of of how lost he is. So to me, uh, it is already inevitable. And so telling that story wasn't so interesting. It was telling the story of the weight of that upon not only us, I hope, as as the viewers watching, uh, but of Gene, Saul, Jimmy, right? And and the connection that his demise is going to bring on our larger story of Jimmy and how important their relationship was to what happens to Jimmy and why Jimmy becomes Saul. And uh, and also that we, we again, to the magic of, of the writers and the actor and, and all of that, that we, we really do care mm-hmm. for, for him even though he's been so diametrically opposed to our main character, uh, as flawed as he also is. talked a lot about Saul actually I want to circle back uh, to El Camino because of the record that just got released but also just quickly um, do you have a favorite long piece of music was Dead Freight with the train heist something that challenged you in maybe a different way but it was uh, you said that was the longest piece of that you did for the show right probably for Breaking Bad yeah maybe for both shows I, I, I have to go back and look um, you know, in truth, I think every piece to me brings it, its challenge. I mean, the challenge of that piece was that sustained and ever-building energy in the Dead Freight scene that just reached so many new levels of fever pitch, right, over such a long sustained period of time and, and, and just keeping that pace and that energy and keeping everybody invested 
at an ever-increasing level. Length of queue or how busy a queue has to be doesn't necessarily relate to how much time or effort I have to spend on it. I can think of this very simple moment where Kim, Ray Seahorn's character, is just standing on a roof smoking, doing nothing really, except obviously a lot going on internally. Yes. And you know, my queue there maybe was 30 or 40 seconds. Right, very small and simple thing, but a tricky thing. And one of those things that if it isn't right, you're better off with nothing. But when it's right, it's really right. And sometimes, you know, I do spend a lot of time and never get to the answer on those things. Uh, but in that case, eventually I did, and I was really happy about it. Maybe the default thing to think is that a long piece of music is is more challenging, but you, now you're telling me it could be a few, if 30 seconds and it could tie you up. Absolutely. Oh, I could spend an entire day on it. Wow. For sure. And and even I might have gone into it thinking, okay, I, you know, this won't take long. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, this too much. And, and then you surprise yourself because you realize that's not the case, right? I mean, I'm, I'm cranking through these things uh, faster than I'd like to in some cases, you know, because I have a week to do these things from start to finish. And so in my memory, sometimes the pieces that I'm proudest of are either <laughs> the ones that I went into it and immediately found the answer and I ran with it and it just, it just came out of me so easily. I remember those and I remember the ones that were an absolute struggle. The ones that were a complete bear. And and in my memory, I remember less about all the ones in between, probably. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, but they're not necessarily, as you point out, the ones that look or feel like they might take the most time or effort. Did Dead Freight or, or Border Crossing, was that more of a flow? Did you find like that, that kind of, the, the churning of it uh, to be something that you just kind of rode as soon as you struck that chord? Of the two, you remember? <laughs> yeah, I do. No, I do. Uh, the, of the two, Dead Freight more than Border Crossing did. I remember Dead Freight very much for, uh, I was in a different studio at the time. This is a number of years ago. And I had a, in my previous studio, I didn't have uh, the windows that I have in this one. And I, I remember like coming to a stopping point on Dead Freight and thinking it was probably late, like 3 a.m., and opening the door, because it was a separate outbuilding from my house, and opening the door, and it's full on the next day, right? And not and being, <laughs> oh, man, like I didn't even, it was, I was just rolling on it, you know, and you just didn't want to stop because I didn't want to forget all the, again, all the sort of levels of it that was working in my brain, and I was trying to keep straight to myself. I just didn't want to lose that that flow until I had a shell of it built that I knew that I could go back to and feel confident in the foundation that had been built already.
whereas border crossing by design uh, musically speaking i knew i wanted to involve a lot of other musicians on that track so it's more than just me performing uh, and i did play a lot of things live on on dead freight too but on um border crossing there's some instruments i don't play uh there's a lot of horns there's a horn section in it guitar there's a lot of guitar that that's beyond my ability my friend James Saez, who also is my engineer on a lot of things um, and a fantastic guitar player, I worked with him for a long time on on those guitar parts, and and, and so I think by design a little bit when you're um, outside of your own self and you're involving again, and I'm, now I'm collaborating on a on a micro level with Vincent Peter. I'm also now collaborating with my my own team of fantastic people. You have to then take a step back and allow those people. Uh, to steer you places. Um, an, an awesome horn section like I had on that is going to look at what I wrote for them uh, and say, okay, that's cool. But by the way, you know, <laughs> this would be even cooler. Uh, and there's, or there's a, there's a wrinkle to this, or there's a way you wrote this that it, 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 we would never do, right? If we were doing this, we would do it like this. And that's going to bring in, for example, in that sense, uh, authenticity to a to a latin american vibe that that i'm maybe trying to hint at i'm certainly not you know going for a mariachi band or anything of the sort but but you know you want that little flavor of that what you know you know and the best way always is in my experience to lean on those people and rely on their expertise and allow that to help make you sound better make your composition better and so there was more of that in in border crossing Also, too, I think border crossing by design is a little more of a a piece to be noticed yeah. musically. It's a little bit more of a standalone moment. Uh, it's one of those classic Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, get into the details and the weeds, right? Of the procedure, of the of procedural it, yeah. aspect of this very fascinating and 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 ultimately nefarious thing that's going on here, uh, uh, but sharing our love of those details and the ingenuity behind it. And that just made for, for a moment that was meant to be more on display than, for example, even Dead Freight, where that pounding adrenaline is so uh, important to the moment. It is, nonetheless, it is, it is embedded in that moment. It's not designed to draw attention to itself more than just add to what's already there. Yeah, and then going back to what we were saying about the balance between the tension and the, the comedy, I think it's so exemplified there too because here you have my palms are sweating, I'm on the edge of my seat, I'm holding my breath to see if they're going to pull this heist off, but then you have Bill Burr in there doing his, <laughs> doing his shtick, right. and it kind of right. balances the whole thing out in this way that we're describing. Yes. Yeah, and, and, you, and musically you have, to, you have to respect that. 
And, and that's part of, you know, that roller coaster I mentioned, you know, that it's, you're building up all that and then you have to make room musically for that moment of perspective. Right? I don't even want to say levity, but, you know, just that completely different perspective uh, and, a, and a moment to savor that and then get back into it. And uh, I, say, I remember going back to our soundtrack discussion, I once got a, an angry email from someone who said, oh, you didn't include the entire length of Dead Freight on right. the soundtrack. I noticed that. Yeah. And the reason for that is exactly those those moments. There, there's, there's moments in the score where by design, almost nothing was happening yeah. because it was not important. It was, should not have at all been the focus. And when presented as a standalone, at least to my ears, and apparently not this person's, but it, w- it was redundant. Yeah. It was unnecessary. All right, so I trimmed it in an effort to make the piece more appropriate uh, as something you would listen to uh, in its own way. And, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe that's not always the right answer. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's, it's one thing when you're watching the scene with the music, but it's another thing when you're listening to something on its own, you know, you want it to have a, a flow to it. And I, and I guess that probably came into play a lot with El Camino. Was that another case where there weren't full cues on the soundtrack? Was the length changed on a few of those? Yeah, they were, but actually, but in the on for the El Camino soundtrack, the opposite is more often the case. What I'm presenting on the record is actually longer in more cases than what appears in the film. Not because I went and extended it for the purpose of the soundtrack, but actually because uh, at its genesis it was that long. And we later decided that not all of it was the best choice for the film. But I kind of figured since it was there, and in my head it had been part of the, the, the conception of it, it might be interesting to fans to have. Uh, and again, in some cases made for a more complete listening experience, I chose to include it. Um, but I, I don't think there was anything I shortened for the, for the El Camino soundtrack. One thing I did notice though, um after the first scene with Jesse and Mike by the river, uh, which is sad, uh, I should mention, because it's right before Walt kills Mike. Yes. And you're thinking, man, if, if only Jesse had stayed there. If only. So many if onlys, right? There's so many if onlys, man. <laughs> and when that scene, when, you know, I went to see El Camino in, uh, in the theater. I was Excellent. like, I, ha- I have to. Uh, and I went to, I guess it was Alamo... Draft House in Brooklyn, one of those kind of more boutique movie theaters. Yep. That's where I saw it too in LA. Yep. Oh, cool. And which is great because you can drink a beer. <laughs> yes. Which I definitely needed. Yeah. I was, I was just like, oh, that's another heartbreaking moment because you're like, maybe if Jesse had hung around a little longer, then Mike might have survived because he might have been the go between or intervened and prevented the face off between Mike and, and Walt. But Right after that, we jump right into Jesse kind of tearing ass and burning rubber away from, you know, away from his captivity in the El Camino. And we get your kind of trademark frenetic action cue. Yes. You return to these like conga drums that you treat. Is that? There's, yeah, there's right. definitely some ethnic, big ethnic drums in there and a lot of processed stuff. Yeah. And you're going to ask me why that doesn't appear on the soundtrack, I'm guessing. Well, I was just going to say it was 
there are there was some other pieces with that tempo i guess on the soundtrack uh like scorching earth i guess was maybe that same tempo but i was just curious about that because it brought us i felt that that piece brought us right back immediately into that universe we didn't have to take any time in getting used to the faces and the people again and the and the scenario it was like your cue just like boom snapped it right back in right back to the time when he's escaping and it's almost like when john williams horns and strings kind of bring you back into the indiana jones world or or, or the star wars world uh, i felt that that cue really just kind of snapped you right back and i and but it but i guess it was too short or Oh no, actually, I mean, you've actually hit the nail on the head. I mean, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to backtrack a little because I'm not, never going to feel comfortable having myself be in any kind of discussion with Maestro Williams, but, <laughs> but, but, but I'm very glad to hear that you felt that that music put you back in the show because that is absolutely was its design. Uh, I, I, but as such, to me, that piece of music belongs in the series and is not part of the film. Yeah, that's interesting. It's something yeah. we've already seen, we already know. There's nothing that no story that's advanced there. And it is the one very overt moment where I took great pains to go back to Breaking Bad. Bring back those very instruments, bring back the very guitar settings, all the all the things that made those moments even though actually there isn't any score. Uh, in that moment where Jesse drives off at the end of yeah, the you series. Yeah, you just hear the engine. You just hear yeah. engine. But because, you know, this was a moment to do everything we could to remind people of where we left off. But as such, to me, it's almost not, I mean, I did write it in the course of making the music for El Camino, but it doesn't at all relate. And by design. And I think to have put it on the soundtrack would have been, to me, off-putting because it doesn't belong with any of the rest of it, uh, very purposely. I totally hear what you're saying now. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and and we ha- we did discuss it for sure. But to me, um, El Camino is the story of Jesse Pinkman from after that moment, starting at the moment when he appears at his friend's house. Yeah. After that. Skinny feet and badger. Skinny feet baby. and badger. Right, and, and that, it's it is of course a connected story, but it is a very much a new story. It's not a story we know anything about, and and even especially musically, I think it's not a story that we spent a lot of time telling in the original series. Right. Uh, right. So so to me, and again there too, like even though that score over Jesse driving away right at the beginning of El Camino, which is throwing us back to the end of Breaking Bad. To me, I hear that music and I don't think Jesse, I think Walter White. Because to me, that music is absolutely tied to him and all the disasters that he wrought, including the one that he inflicts upon Jesse. And because this story is so much about Jesse finally being out from under that thumb and and making his own decisions, right or wrong and on how to get there um to me there was just a big disconnect between the two and and that's why that piece isn't isn't on the soundtrack
to close it out because it seems like this album and you know we're talking about El Camino because this is the most recent uh, release yes you're talking about collaboration with instrumentalists and musicians in border crossing for a specific piece of music was there any kind of direct collaboration or back and forth between you and Thomas Golovich in the creation of this record? It seems to be like just as much his record as it is yours. Oh, absolutely. And in truth, in terms of how it was presented and all the effort that went into making it sort of the listening experience that it is, all credit to Thomas because he spent by far the vast majority more of the time on that. And also I think there's there's an aspect of, of that world that people might not realize too, which is that, you know, the, all the licensing and the rights involved in getting a piece of source music, getting the rights to put that on a soundtrack album, that's not simple. Uh, and there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of work behind the scenes that gets into making that possible. And there's a lot that goes into it. And so being able to, to do all that, and, and I honestly, in this case particularly, deferred more to Thomas because uh, he's done more of this especially this collaboration of source and score on one release. I haven't done a lot of that, um, to be honest. And Thomas is a, is a DJ and he's, he just has some instincts and proclivities there that I don't have. I had some input, certainly, but my score was what it was at that point. I kind of turned over how I wanted my score to be represented. And from, from there, uh, um, Thomas took that bull and ran with it. He's an incredible music supervisor. As I said before, I was constantly delighted throughout this whole time watching these episodes and shows how many pieces of music or bands or musicians that I'm like, who's that and why is it so great? And how I, I felt like I had never heard about 80% of, or more of the source songs that he chose. You've had this long relationship. I mean, was it going back to, you said, uh, Six Feet Under? That's right. Yeah, we. Yeah. And he, and he was the music supervisor on that as well, right? He was. When you mentioned that, and I thought back to how much I loved the source music on Six Feet Under, there were so many great songs used in that show. When they used, like, I guess it was Obstacle One by Interpol. And at mm -hmm. that time, when I was watching the show, Interpol was like my favorite band ever, and I immediately thought okay, who's choosing this music? Because they've got a great ear. Do you feel like in the course of your relationship, you learned so many things about bands or, or even to the point where maybe some of his music selections were influencing some of your writing in any way? Yes and yes, I think to all of that. Um, I think one, one of the many beauties of how Thomas works and the, and the choices that he makes are for exactly what you say, said, finding these little gems that works so well, but especially on a show like Saul or Breaking Bad or in El Camino, unless it's intended to be showy, the value actually of having it be unknown and yet still work so great is immeasurable because as a viewer, you're not suddenly singing along, which would be disastrous in a sense because that, and, and I think this is where music supervision so often goes wrong in films and TV shows, right? If you're throwing in an ACDC song, and, and I'm no knock on ACDC, who I love, but, but you know, something that we all know inside out, it is inevitable that to me that that's going to take you out 
I mean, that's going to be more powerful than anything you're watching. And it's going to take you away from what you're watching. Whereas I think, you know, part of Thomas's gift is finding these songs that, that we're intrigued by and we might think about a lot, particularly on a second or a third viewing. We're like, wow, that song is great. I'm curious about who that is or what that artist is, but isn't getting in the way of, of the story and, and when we first hear it. Uh, and obviously there's exceptions to that when it's awesome to have a song that we all know and can click along to. But for the most part, I think it's, it's more often the former than the latter. In terms of aesthetically working together, I think, first of all, we have a shorthand now from having worked together for so long. We talk a lot in spotting sessions about whether music is going to be score or source and which would be better served for the show. But I think a lot of what we do now, we don't even have to talk about. Hmm. I think it just just comes. Yeah. Uh, especially later on in a, in, a, in a long series, like, you know, by season five of Better Call Saul, I mean, so much has been established about how things work and don't work, which is not to say that we don't aren't trying new things all the time, but, but I think there's an understanding there of a sweet spot uh, between the role of what, what score is going to do and what source is going to do and, and what defines it best. And, and once we've found that, uh, you know, we have conversations for sure. I'm interested in, in what he's choosing, particularly if song and score are close together you know there has to be some coordination there so that so it's not jarring again the last thing we ever want to do with the music is have it stick out like a sore thumb for some reason so those are particularly moments that i'm always interested to hear uh and then there's also moments that we leave that spotting session not knowing whether source or score is going to be the better choice and so we're both working on the same scene at the same time. And then it becomes up to poor Vince to <laughs> make the decision. have to explain to one or the other of us that <laughs> it's not your yeah. day. Yeah. I hope you don't mind. I, I, as I said, I started to appreciate your work in other shows and movies uh, more in this process. I hope you don't get tired of talking about or answering the questions of the Breaking Bad enthusiasts. <laughs> I hope it's not too much. No, I don't. And as you as you pointed out, I'm 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 trying to relish it actually because the, these days are are nearing their end. And uh, and I I certainly uh, I mean people I hope will certainly find these shows in many many years to come too. But in terms of a chapter of my life, uh, I'm definitely gonna approach this last year with eyes wide open and appreciate it for the gift that it is, the gift that it's been to me, the gift that uh, Vince and Peter and all the other producers and writers have, have brought us. Right. Well, do you feel like, um, you, like, for example, Flesh and Bone was something that's more of kind of a traditional uh, scoring project with, with more uh, classical orchestral stuff? Mm -hmm. And that seems to be 
where your roots, right? Or uh, True. something. And do you mm -hmm. look, do you think going forward, you're going to look for more things like that where you can explore different palettes and different uh, forms of scoring? I certainly will. Or it all depends. Yeah, you know, look, I, you know, again, again, this gets tricky because, you know, uh, a, a little bit, uh, and rightly so, I'm at the mercy of, of what, who I'm collaborating with and on what. We'll see what happens in the future. Uh, there's a lot of music in me that's, that's very different from, from the Breaking Bad stuff, and there's a lot of music in me that's an evolution of what I've done in the Breaking Bad stuff. I, I, I think what will always stay the same for me is, is some of the tenets of how I work, uh, and how I approach scoring, uh, you know, I'm very much, um, my music is very much related to the music it's written for. It's not intended to be anything other than that, but it's supposed to be tailored as much as possible to, you know, provide the maximum effect that music can bring to the storytelling. Um, and then also just my aesthetic, uh, of how much music to use and where to use it. Uh, are things that are going to be a commonality in what I do, but the instruments could absolutely change, and I hope they will. I look forward to lots of other things and working with lots of other folks. As you say, I've had a lot of opportunities to do different things that I've done in Breaking Bad, like Flesh and Bone, like in a film like The Disaster Artist, which has a you know a very different palette. And uh, and we'll see what comes uh, forward. What would be really interesting, and and I don't know that this will be the case, but would be if I'm so fortunate to work with a Vince Gilligan on a project that is different from outside of this universe. Um, that would be fascinating to me because we've been in this world for so long and rightly we have been purposefully constrained uh, as, as much as the music has of course developed and grown, there are some aspects of it that are uniquely designed to be similar and consistent throughout these Breaking Bad stories, but maybe I'll get a chance to tell a new story. Well, even though the, this, this chapter and this story is gonna come to an end pretty soon, maybe next year, I guess next year, I think it would help people process it more to know that maybe there's a prospect of you working with Vince in a different context in the future. So we can look forward to that perhaps and all the other things that you do. And I just wanted to thank you really from the bottom of my heart, even though <laughs> you didn't intentionally do it, but uh, just being able to be a part of this world that you have colored so richly has meant a lot to me. And I know it's meant a lot to a lot of people. And it's, it's, it's something that is really, there have been signposts and goalposts uh, <laughs> in my life that have coincided with the show and my experiencing the show. And I think that's why it sinks in and means so much. Evidence of that is that people are excited about this El Camino record. And it's just, it's always so fun to just get a little bit more and see where, see where it winds up. And uh, anyway, thank you for, for everything really. I think you can feel good knowing that your music and this story has made a big impact on people's lives in a significant way. Well, it's very kind of you to say, Charles. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. And I, I say that, you know, the joy has certainly been mine. I've been so blessed to be along on this journey. And uh, I haven't finished it yet. We got one more very That's important right. season to go. So don't compliment me until I don't <laughs> screw up the last season. Got to bring it home. Got to bring it home. So, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll worry about, uh, you know, the legacy when it's done. 
but uh, but of course, so so proud to be a small part of it, and uh, and and always happy to talk about it. Enjoyed speaking with you today. Yeah, I really enjoyed speaking with you, and thank you for that time. And uh, you know, maybe we'll talk again one day about a different project. But in the meantime, I'm going to go get that El Camino record and add it to my collection, and uh, and can't wait for the final chapter. So a lot to look forward to, actually. Indeed. 2021 my friend yeah it's gonna be it's it's gonna be a good year we're gonna it has to be right in (laughs) so many ways all right dave well you know best to you and yours and and thanks again for your time it's been great you're welcome so much thank you 